2: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one. Friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you, and put this whole craziness that we had this week into some sort of context so you can make good judgments. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Cramer. When the stock market falls as hard as it's been falling for the past week, it doesn't take much to give us a bounce. Today, you know what it was? It was a rally overnight in China, of all things, that spurred our rip-snorting opening. Dow ultimately climbing 287 points after being up much higher earlier in the session. S&P gained 1.42%. NASDAQ? which you know has been hammered, it pulled volume to 2.29%. But listen, we won't get sustainable rebound until it's based on something domestic, something here, which is why we had that intraday sell-off before the late afternoon bounce. I want to show you something. Just look at the, what happened here. The initial rally based on China, it evaporated after getting hit with a one-two punch. First, J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon, noting the obvious that our terrific economy could be endangered by geopolitical issues... And then Larry Kudlow, the president's chief economic advisor, he let it be known that Trump is, once again, unhappy with China's responses on trade. Sure, we bounced back, but it was pretty precarious a couple of moments here. Now, I don't mind an oversold rally like we had today, but the worry that drove us down earlier this week, the idea that we might be facing a Fed-mandated slowdown, is still very much on the table. In fact, it's palpable. With that in mind, what's the game plan for next week? All right, first, Monday, Monday morning belongs to Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America. He has the advantage of knowing that anything, even hinting at a possible slowdown that he says will put the kibosh on his stock because of what we saw today with bank earnings. More on that later. Bank of America stock is cheap. But as we saw from JP Morgan, that doesn't mean it can't go lower. Here's one I don't normally listen to, but we're not in normal times. J.B. Hunt, the gigantic trucking company. We keep hearing that there's a shortage of truckers in this country, and it's making transportation more expensive. So let's go directly to the source to find out what the heck is going on. Tuesday morning is one of the toughest moments in earnings season. So many disparate numbers before we even open for trading, we hear from two healthcare companies that I like very much: United Health Group (UNH) and J and J (Johnson and Johnson). We own both from our Chapel trust. United Health is the best-run health insurer in America. I bet they can raise numbers. As for J&J, it's been trading like it's got earnings risk. They've got the best pipeline in the business, and that's what matters most. I hope it pulls back and you can get a chance to buy into further weakness. Oh, boy, here's two hot buttons for me. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, they report in the morning, and neither one's getting anywhere near the respect they deserve. Now, I do expect both to deliver really good numbers, but I've been wrong about the investment banks before. I honestly can't believe that Goldman Sachs, my alma mater, is the cheapest in the entire group. I do hope that David Solomon, the new CEO, remember replace Lloyd Blankfein, sketches out a vision for how to restore growth. And that Stephen Scherer, the new CFO, is polished enough to paint a positive picture of falling expenses and rising revenue. And give us some hope here, please. This stock has sold off in the wake of its conference call for ages. Maybe the new team can break that pattern. It has been one, one miserable stock to own. After the close, we get results from IBM, and this stock is just a few bucks above its 52-week low. I think the quarter's going to be okay. To me, IBM doesn't seem to have much downside. It does sport a 4.5% yield here. I just don't know if the company's gradual embrace of faster-growing strategic comparative businesses will produce blowout numbers, which is what this stock really needs. Uh, But this low, I don't know. I think it's probably going to be okay no matter what. We recently talked to Oscar Munoz. He's the CEO of United Continental. Remember, we were in San Francisco, and boy, was he bullish. I say we get an, if we get another swoon, say, before Tuesday, maybe Monday goes down, this one might be a good one to pick up ahead of earnings. We also hear from Netflix. Ooh, controversial. I told you it was a big day, and as I love the product, the stock trades on new subscriber numbers. Unless those numbers pick up from the last quarter, this stock's not going anywhere. That said, Netflix is down more than 80 bucks from its highs, and it was down 100 yesterday. <laughs> Long term, this might be a good buying opportunity. It's not my favorite. It's my least favorite of the Fang stocks. What else? I've been telling you that the railroads may be seeing a slowdown. This is very important. It's a slowdown in cargo growth, and it's something new. CSX will let us know if there's just a pause or maybe there's something bigger going on. If there is something bigger, you can expect a stock to get clocked, so be careful, CSX. Finally, there's LAM Research. Ooh, what a terrible act in stock. This semiconductor capital equipment maker warned us early on that there could be trouble in semiconductor paradise because they'd seen a slowdown in orders. LAM didn't indicate when that slowdown might end. Unless excellent CEO Martin Ansys traces out a more positive second-half story, meaning the last quarter, we might get a renewed bout of selling in everything from Micron and Intel to AMD and, yes, NVIDIA. Wednesday, we hear from Abbott Labs. This is one of the steadiest companies on Earth, run by the brilliant Miles White. I'm expecting a very good quarter and perhaps a nice forecast boost. I think Abbott's the best place to be of all of these stocks, believe it or not. Okay, we also find out how United Rentals is doing. This is a terrific company, but it's been on a bunch of times. But at the same time, I worry that we might hear about some weakness in construction. That would confirm my view of a looming Fed-mandated slowdown. Thursday, Newcore reports this steel maker really should be making a fortune, given that the tariffs on imported steel have now kicked in. So if the numbers aren't great, I think it will be surprising to Wall Street. After the close, we get results from PayPal. This stock has plunged from $93 to $74 in the span of a month for a furious bounce of $79 today. I told ActionAlertsPlus.com members that you had to buy the weakness, something I'll stress again at the Street.com's boot camp, which I'm running all day tomorrow in New York City. We want CEO Dan Schulman on that conference call to tell us more about his monetization efforts. member Venmo, not to mention how the recent acquisitions have been working out. We will also hear from another payments play, American Express. They've, there's been a pronounced pattern here where the stock goes down on the numbers, no matter what they are, and then bounces back up upon further reflection. Part of the fintech rally could happen again. Friday may be the biggest day of all. Kramer fave Honeywell will talk about earnings, but also give us a preview of what the new Honeywell will look like after a couple of huge spinoffs. I bet we'll like what they have to say. Honeywell's been a good pick for my charitable trust. But you know what's been a terrible one where I've screwed up? Slumberjack. I figured that the dramatic run in oil prices would somehow be reflected in this stock, that somehow would generate higher fees for the best oil service company in the world. I was plain wrong. The business is just bad as a surprising number of countries and companies simply refuse to increase their drilling budgets even though oil's gone up so much. It's been a severe disappointment. I've beaten myself up enough. Has Nelton Peltz made his mark on Procter & Gamble? Will the company announce something new and different, or will Peltz's addition to the board of directors make no impact on the company's sluggish earnings? If there's any additional growth, or even better, a restructuring stock could fly! Last but not least, we hear from VF Corp. Just profile them, remember? I said I really like the moves these guys are making, spinning off the dowdy jeans business, doubling down on high-growth brands like Vans. That said, the apparel stocks, especially the luxury-related ones, have hit a wall in part because of worries about trade barriers, China not taking enough stuff, but also because of fears that the numbers can't possibly be as good as they were last year at this time. The bottom line, no matter what happens, I expect heightened volatility. But after a week of seemingly endless selling until today, it can be volatility to the upside as long as the president cools the rhetoric and the Federal Reserve at least acknowledges some nascent weakness in the system. Let's go to Naveen in Texas. Naveen! Howdy, Jim, and a big booyah. Booyah back? Jim, my
0: question is on Nutanix, with so much competition in the cloud computing sector and also rumors that Google may be entering the hyper-convergence space, which Google denied, by the way. What are your thoughts on Nutanix in the longer run, especially with news that it's partnering with Juniper Networks? Is it a good buy?
2: OK, I would have said, actually, first of all, I mean, thank you for that question. Uh, it was up very big today. But you're right. There were a host of rumors that drove this stock down, and they were unfounded. It's still a $7 billion company It's still losing money. Uh, I wish we had said buy it yesterday. It's up three today. But I, I, I say that Nutanix is a great company, and it's doing well. But for the long term, please. Tom in New York. Tom. Bup, 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 bup. Booyah, Jim! An excellent, well-constructed booyah. Back. What's up? Thanks for taking my call, Jim, and thanks for taking a photo with me a couple months back on Wall Street. I really always appreciate will. It. Anybody who asks, hey, listen, it takes just as much energy to be kind as to be mean. <laughs> if you want a picture with me, I say bring it on. Like tomorrow at the Absolutely. boot camp, I'm taking picture with everybody. What's going on?
3: My question is for Bristol Myers. Bristol
2: Myers! Yeah, what's up? We're we're coming up on earnings on the 25th of October.
3: We're trading below the 200-day moving average. We had a little bad news coming out today regarding the Phase 3 Checkmate 331 study for small cell lung
2: cancer. What do I do, Jim? Do I well, sell one? Well, I got to tell you I brought hold. this up, Tom, because I was puzzled. You and I saw that same study, and I was saying, "Oh man, are they going to clock it?" They didn't clock it. The stock was up a penny, which shocked me. I think if you can get this thing at a three percent yield, which means it's got to go down because it yields 2.78, I think you're actually going to do fine. That said, I prefer Merck because I think Keytruda is a better drug than anything Bristol Myers has. All right. I want you to expect some heightened volatility, but it could be to the upside given how oversold we are. I can't say it's sustainable, though, because of the Fed. Bad money tonight. Stocks are bouncing back following the biggest two-day sell-off in eight months. Is it time to move past the Fed and bring on earnings season? I'm going to give you a special take. It's going to surprise you. Then speaking of earnings, the big banks have officially kicked off the season. Should you bank on the financials with the rising rates? Remember, second largest group in the market here. And up until a month ago, Okta's shares were up nearly 200% year-to-date. But his text been wrecked. The company's followed suit. Could it be a buying opportunity with one of our cloud princes? I'm sitting down with the CEO. So stay with Kramer.
4: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag mad tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
0: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.
4: Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving.
2: All day, I kept hearing the same thing, the same refrain, Enough of the Fed! Bring on the earnings! (laughs) Folks, I wish it were that simple. I've been doing this for almost 40 years now, and I can tell you in no uncertain terms, that you cannot ignore the Federal Reserve, not at this point in the business cycle. All right, let me, be, let me be crystal clear about this. Right, When the Fed tightens, they make it more expensive to get a short-term loan. Lots of companies rely on short-term financing, so they're literally raising the cost of doing business every day. For years, this didn't really matter. Why? Because rates were so incredibly low. But now our new Fed chief, Jerome Powell, nice man, is talking about going from 225 to 3.25% by the end of next year for these short rates. Guys, that's serious. So despite the relatively strong numbers we saw from the from the big banks today, I'm actually concerned that we could be headed for big trouble in the earnings front. The Fed's determined to keep tightening, and if we get the promised rate hike in December, followed then by three more rate hikes next year, no matter how weak the economy might get, I'm betting that will cause an accelerant to what could be a serious economic slowdown. I don't think it's, an actual recession is on the table. is too strong. But if we merely decelerate from 4% GDP growth down to 2%, that's going to hurt a lot of stocks. Remember, I care about the economy, but I also care about stocks. And make no mistake, the economy has already just started to deteriorate very recently. The thing that terrifies Wall Street, though, is not that the housing and the autos and the corrugated packaging, all sorts of chemicals are doing worse. It's that the Fed seems oblivious to the facts on the ground. Maybe they're back in that old ivory tower that they uh, often inhabit, or worse, they're actually indifferent. When Powell talked about overshooting last week, he was sending a signal that he's happy to keep tightening, even if it does some collateral damage to the real economy and the working person that will bleed into the stock market. Uh, uh, Charles Evans from the Fed in Chicago did the same thing today in an interview with Steve Leisman. It's almost like they don't care. Now, this very morning, J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon warned that there could be significant global headwinds that could hurt our economy. He sounded a lot less sanguine than when he spoke to him on September 24th back in Philly. I know the Fed doesn't take me seriously. Hey, we saw that in the minutes of 11 years ago. But maybe they'll listen to the CEO of one of the world's largest banks. Don't get me wrong. If the Fed really believes we really need a quarter point in December, I am going to be fine with it. I'm not going to fight a quarter point. But committing already to three more rate hikes on top of that in 2019, well, that kind of feels like lunacy to me. Here's a crazy idea. Rather than trying to overshoot, maybe the Fed could just look at the data and try to get it right. See, there was this person, um, uh, Janet Yellen. She used to run the Fed, did a great job. She used that method. It worked then. It will work now. Look, not only have we seen a slowdown in sector after sector in the last seven, eight weeks, but we just got a weaker than expected consumer price index number. Many inflation can't really be ranging when you get one of those. The whole point of lockstep rate hikes is to fight inflation, but the CPI was OK. So here's what's about to happen. Three lockstep rate hikes next year will slow growth, boost the dollar, make people feel less wealthy. That is a fatal cocktail, one that makes it very difficult for most companies to raise their forecasts. And the number one predictor of higher stock prices is higher earnings estimates in the future. The best predictor of lower stock prices? When companies cut their forecasts. I expect a ton of guidance cuts like we had this week from PPG, Trinzio, Floor, and today Wabash National, a maker of all things, having to do with trucks. Hey, I thought the trucking industry was supposed to be on fire with the ability to pass on any raw costs from higher steel prices. Hmm, I guess I was wrong. If a company cuts numbers because of the Fed's intransigence, no one's going to say, excluding the Fed, we would have done great, like they do with currency or uh, gasoline. You aren't going to see JPAL adjusted earnings. They'll just be plain old number cuts. And that's going to hurt, as it did with all four of the companies I just mentioned, whose stocks were just annihilated. Now, some of you will say that the economy is so strong that Fed can afford to keep tightening. I heard that all day. Or that inflation is raging, so they don't have any choice. Jeez, I wish that were the case. But we've seen sector after sector slowing down. And most of the inflation right now comes from things that are outside of the Fed's control. Energy, tariffs put on by the president. The supply of truck drivers. Look, the current situation is almost nothing in common with 2007. Let's just make that clear. When our whole financial system was about to fall off a precipice. <laughs> At worst, I think we had a slowdown and not even a recession. But the Fed is making the same mistake now that they made 11 years ago. They know nothing! They've decided to stop doing their homework, or they've become very anecdotal in their analysis. Back then, the Fed just looked at the headlines. They said, oh, overheated housing market. we got, uh, we got to raise the rates. It was already crashing, Mr. Fed. Uh, they didn't want to get their hands dirty with research like we do. Now, Jerome Powell doesn't even seem interested in knowing the data. He's got that uh, preferred narrative. He's sticking with it. Again, I wish life were that easy. So as earnings season gets going, remember its forecast that control stock prices. Not the actual quarterly results that we're seeing. And if the Fed stays on its ill-advised current course, these forecasts will be, well, uh, how about suboptimal, to put it very diplomatically? Let's go to Jennifer in Arizona. Jennifer.
0: Hi, Kramer, and thank you for being a calm voice in the face of market turbulence for us out in Kramerica.
2: Well, thank you, Jennifer. Remember, I'm just trying to be constructive, not putting on a, you know, not positive, it's not positive, but constructive so that we all can make money longer term. How can I help? Thank you. Well, I'm calling about GWW Granger earnings
0: of next Tuesday, and they've had big surprises the last four quarters. I understand their markets are mainly North America, so maybe China trade won't affect it. How do you feel about holding it? into earnings next week and beyond.
2: Well, I've got to tell you, like Cintas, which reported, and we got a little bit of a, a hiccup, I think Granger should be sold. I, the last quarter was terrific, Granger. I don't know if it can get better than that because it's a small to medium-sized business. We're customers who Gr- love Granger. But I, you know what? It's had a very big run, and the small and business, medium-sized businesses are starting to get hurt. So maybe we take some off the table. All right, I wish it were as simple as bring all in the earnings. But we have to pay attention to the Fed. It's the forecast that's moving stocks, and they're going to hurt the forecast. Hey, much more man Bunny. It's one of the most important earnings seasons for one big sector. I'll reveal it and what it means for your money just ahead. Man, I crowned it a Cloud Prince. But after a tough week for the tech sector, hasn't it lost its crown? I'm finding out whether the recently beaten up Okta could still be a smart pick. And Canopy Growth just completed the first legal cannabis export to the US, with cannabis set to legalize ending prohibition next week. I'm asking the CEO about what's ahead. So stick with Kramer.
1: The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.
0: When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: We finally got some cold, hard earnings to talk about. This morning we heard from three of the largest banks on earth, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo, not to mention one of the larger regional banks, PNC. All right, so how'd they do? Overall, I'd say not as good as we'd hope, but not as bad as we feared. First, though, let's set the scene. Obviously, this has been a rough time for the banks, the whole stock market, for that matter. For most of this year, the financials have lagged behind the rest of the market. They've been pretty terrible, actually. And that's because of uh, classic worries about what's known as a flat yield curve. While the Fed was raising short-term interest rates, which determine what the banks pay you for your deposits, long-term rates stubbornly refused to go higher, which meant the banks couldn't charge much more for their loans. Now that's a bad setup for any kind of financial because it hurts what's known as their net interest margin. Oh, all the cognoscenti call it NIM. The difference between what you pay for your money and what you pay them for a loan, what they pay for your money and what you pay for a loan. In other words, the deposit and the loan. Yet when long-term rates, as exemplified by the yield on the 10-year treasury, finally started rising over the past six weeks, the banks still didn't get any loan. In fact, they've been crushed just like everything else in the recent sell-off. Why? Because while long-term rates have finally started rising, yay, it looks like short-term rates will continue to rise even faster, thanks to a clueless Federal Reserve. More on that later, and I am calling them clueless, because they seem so proud of themselves, so proud that they're willing to go off a cliff with their eyes closed. All right, I want you to look at this chart, which shows you the difference between the yield on 10-year Treasuries minus the yield on 2-year Treasuries. This is a pretty good proxy for the profitability of the banking industry. And as you can see, well, it's really been going down in one direction, huh? I mean, that's, well, that's what the stocks have done, too. Now, sure, the 10-year sports a 3.16% yield, but if the Fed follows through with its plans for four more rate hikes, even the shortest of short-term loans will go for 3.25%. Here's the core dilemma of the financial industry. As long as the Fed keeps tightening, Uh, The banks need higher long-term rates in order to grow their earnings, but not too high, or else loan growth will fall off a cliff. Silla and Carib this time. Now, coming off the slacking we've been through for the past week, you might have expected to see some hideous numbers from the banks today. Instead, we got, let's call it a mixed bank. Remember, the key metrics here are the net interest margins, loan growth, investment banking, which includes some trading, the latter of which has been a real dog for the whole group. (laughs) When I say investment banking, I'm talking about classic things that are done, like where I worked at Goldman. You got some trading, and you got some M&A, and you got some fixed income. Look, we're also very interested in what the CEOs have to say about the industry itself and the economy in general, and we're really interested in hearing what Jamie, Jamie Diamond from J.P. Morgan has to say because, in addition to being a real smart guy, he's one of the few remaining bank CEOs who actually steered his company through the financial crisis, and he steered it really well. So let's drill down. All right. First, let's talk about the best of the day, at least in terms of the stock reaction. But also, I liked it a lot. Citigroup reported a small earnings beat and even smaller revenues missed and not great. But their net interest margin was flat. And excluding the impact of currency fluctuations, they saw a 4 percent increase in loan growth year over year. I'll take that any day of the week. Retail banking, tad softer than expected, but that's not a major emphasis for Citi. How about investment banking? The fixed income currencies and commodities business actually up 4 percent versus the previous quarter. A terrific beat. Brookridge was good. Now, I winced when I saw that revenue miss, worrying that bears would seize on that one one number, okay? Because that's what was highlighted uh, when we saw it in all the headlines on TV and in the wires. But City's quarter was stronger than it first appeared. The revenue line didn't tell you enough. The main highlight was actually the company's spending discipline, which is what allowed them to deliver an earnings beat that was nice. Plus, they brought back an astounding 75 million shares in the quarter, which is part of that total $6.4 billion that the company returned to shareholders, which is significant even for a $172 billion company. Did Citi do great? Mm, but business is okay. The exec- execution is terrific. And that's good enough for a stock that trades at only nine times next year's earnings and just 1.1 times its tangible book value. Uh, uh, what you get if you shut down the company and liquidated everything tomorrow? The buyback is one of the biggest on the New York Stock Exchange, and the balance sheet is rock solid, even after repurchasing 20% of the share count over the past six years. Hence, why the stock rallied a buck 46, staying strong all day. It's still well off its $80 high, and at $69, I am telling you, represents tremendous value. Okay, how about you know, the greatest bank on earth? Is what some people would say, the J.P. Morgan. At first glance, this one looked pretty good. A nice top and bottom line beat with a slightly better than expected net interest margin. However, there were some things to nitpick. Investment banking, a a little bit rough. And this uh, fixed income currency and commodities revenue was down 18% versus the previous quarter. Eh, not great, especially when you consider the city's thick, as it's known, was up nicely. Commercial banking declined by 2% versus last quarter, and while consumer and community banking was up 6%, there was nevertheless a pretty substantial decline in mortgage activity, but it was a great quarter. They made a ton of money. I, I'm nitpicking, like I said. It, it's usually profitable. But there was a buzzkill, the thing that caused the stock to close down 1.1 percent after a very strong opening. It was Jamie Dimon's commentary on the media call. Jamie talked about, and I quote, Brexit, Italy, trade, reversals of QE, Turkey, Argentina, Saudi Arabia. It's an extensive list of stuff. And then Dimon went on to say, those things don't derail a strong U.S. economy, but they are out there. And eventually it may have an effect. No one should be surprised if it happens down the road, end quote. While Diamond still thinks our economy is going strong, and he's making a ton of money for shareholders, it's strong in spite of these issues, which is why he warned that the market may not take it well if the Fed keeps raising rates. you got to understand, Jamie's normally a pretty optimistic guy. So even though his comments weren't negative and the quarter was fabulous, he sounded more cautious than he used to be. Uh, Now, this marked, I thought, a major change versus the brilliant Jamie Diamond that we interviewed in Philadelphia just a few weeks ago. And that, that discouraged me a little. That said, J.P. Morgan is still best of breed. And I bet a week from now it makes up the losses it endured in its stock today and clears $110 from its current year 107 perch, down a buck 18 for the day after being up at $110 earlier in the morning. As for Wells Fargo, you know what? The numbers are pretty typical of what we've come to expect. Company delivered a top line beat, bottom line miss, courtesy of disappointing fee income. Net interest margin increased slightly, but average total deposits shrank by three percent year over year. Average loan balance fell one percent. All in all, though, it's good enough. This bank is starting to make a comeback. I like the stock very much. Down here at fifty-two bucks, was up sixty-seven cents today. Too cheap to ignore thing you need to remember is that investors just wanted Wells Fargo to get its house in order after years of being held back by that big cross-selling uh, scandal. And that's, they seem to be doing just that. Mr. Sloan's doing a good job. When you put them all together, the, big, the results of the big money center banks were, let's say, unremarkable. Aside from Jamie Dimon's more downbeat commentary about the world. However, PNC, the biggest regional, also reported this morning, and what they told us was downright worrisome. The headline numbers from this regional bank were just fine, mostly because it owns a big stake in BlackRock, which reports next week. That's that asset manager. But man, oh, man, the loan growth was anemic. It was up just 2 percent, really bad, especially for a bank with more than 2,400 branches scattered across the country, including the supposedly robust mid-Atlantic and southern regions. This is exactly the kind of slowing growth that I'm so concerned about. Remember, borrowings are the metric that everyone's been watching. And while the money centers might have been somewhat reassuring, PNC was anything but if you were worried about a decelerating loan book. PNC's numbers suggest that you should keep worrying. The problem? PNC blame excessive, excessive competition from non-bank lenders, including private equity firms. That's not good for margins, and if the expansion is on target. So what's the, why isn't PNC making more money? Is it really competition, or are we in an economy that isn't as strong as it looks? Where, for example, as Barry Sternlich, CEO of Stirlwood Property Trust, told us, steel has gotten so expensive that it's not profitable to build lots of new structures anymore. In response, PNC stock plunged more than $7, 5.5% today. In fact, the weakness was so bad that it brought down the whole KBW regional bank index, shed more than 2% thanks to the negative pin action. Bottom line here, regular viewers know that I got a lot more cautious on the economy starting last week. Too many industries are slowing. Fed doesn't seem care. So while the major money center banks all reported solid numbers, City being a standout, they didn't give me much reason to feel more upbeat about the broader stock market. In fact, Jamie Dimon's surprisingly icy commentary about trade worried that only reinforced my belief that we need to be very careful here, even as the stock's way too cheap to ignore at this point. Oh, and PNC? Just plain awful just awful much more mad money head abdicating the throne or fighting to stay in the royal family i'm sitting down with the ceo of Okta to ask about the stocks double digit drop over the past month and find out whether it fits into the group of tech stocks that i think could be smart buys right now then as canada gets ready to legalize cannabis next week i'm talking with one of the top players in the region don't miss my exclusive with canopy growth and all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the lightning round so stay with kramer Last night I told you that if you want to bottom fish in tech, you need to identify companies that have already reported good numbers and look for levels where you think their stocks would be become too attractive to ignore. Now, now that tech seems to stabilize, at least for the moment, let's circle back to one of our fast-growing cloud princes. Remember, we anointed those, and this one's called Okta. Here's a company that's a major player in the multi-factor identification space. Basically, Okta's cloud-based software protects networks from being infiltrated by, yes, imposters. These guys handle everything related to your login and verification credentials. As we conduct more and more of our business and our lives online, the need for this stuff only grows. That's why Okta was such an incredible performer for the first nine months of the year. After the company reported yet another fabulous quarter in September, its stock surged to 75. At that point, it was up nearly 200% for the year. But the last few weeks have been brutal for many of the companies that are like Okta and Okta itself. It's come down more than 23% from its September highs, including an 11% decline just this week. What makes this especially striking to me is that Okta actually had a very positive investor day on Wednesday, and it didn't make any difference because the whole group was being obliterated. I think this is exactly the kind of stock that you can circle back to once you're sure the panic's over, and I don't know if we're there yet, even as the cloud stocks had a nice bounce today. So do not take it from me. Let's check in with Todd McKinnon. He's the co-founder and chairman CEO of Okta to get a better sense of how his company's doing. Mr. McKinnon, welcome back to Mad Money.
5: Thanks for having me back on. It's great to be back on Mad Money.
2: Well, I'm thrilled that you're on top, especially because you had 57% year-over-year numbers, and uh, you could be well on your way to being a billion-dollar company, couldn't you?
5: Yeah, we're very happy about the growth, and the best thing about it is we think that in a lot of ways we're just getting started.
2: Well, could you talk about we are in a tough market. You know that. And what I've always said is when you have a tough market, you need to find companies that have genuine tailwinds, secular growth tailwinds that you know you're going to be fine even if it, uh, the stock stumbles a little. You've got a bunch of tailwinds that are helping you, don't you?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's, we're very excited about it. And for us, the secular tailwinds, there are three of them, and they're all very important and very impactful. The first one is every organization is using the cloud to make their workforce more productive, rolling out the best tools, best technology. Second one is every company in every industry is figuring out how they can use the cloud to be the Amazon of their industry before Amazon becomes the Amazon of their industry. So they're trying to digitize, they're trying to transform the customer experience with technology. And the third one is that, when you think about workforce productivity and being a digital company, it's all open and more connected, but it's also the security risk and the opportunity to have better security is more important than ever. And we can help companies with all three of these things.
2: And I'm thinking that one of the great unfortunate secular trends is that we as a nation now have some enemies that are very clever. We have state-sponsored uh, hackers, North Korea, Russia, yeah. China. Are you, see, are you able to stop or try your best? Obviously, they're really the guys who are doing imposter work now, right? Yeah, when, like I said, when,
5: the, when things get more connected, the stakes go up, you know, the, the risks go up as well. And what we focus on is, first of all, making sure customers have the basic. So the basics are know who's logging in from where, knowing what kind of devices they're coming in from, and make sure you're doing basic security checks like the, the, the right kinds of passwords, not weak passwords, but strong passwords. Making it easy for the end user while at the same time making sure for high-risk things the security is locked down and rock solid.
2: You know, I, I'm about to watch, the like everybody else, we're getting closer to the World Series and uh, some teams. I know a lot of people in town are upset about the Yankees, but they're playing against what I think may be one of the greatest teams that. of Sorry our the lifetime, Yankees. the Red Sox. This may be one of the greatest. And so I'm thinking, I'm watching, reading your investor day. You have the Major League Baseball as a client, right? We're We're very excited about this. So Major League Baseball has been a
5: customer – of Okta for a while for the, basically the employees of the teams. So pe- think about internal employees, the workforce of the teams. And the, the new win for us with Major League Baseball was that they've expanded that to be actually the login and the identity underpinnings of MajorLeagueBaseball.com. So it's a high-scale consumer website and we're helping Major League Baseball make it both very easy to use for the fan checking in on their various apps and services while at the same time making sure it's secure.
2: Well this is important for me because everyone here knows that I had a major problem logging on about a half, really about four years ago, and all they could do is tell me you know it's going to be a very long season don't worry but now when I go to yeah. the site it's instant so that's your technology
5: We're working hard to make you know major league baseball successful and all of our other over 5,000 customers, they're all going through this transition. They have to figure out how to get connected to customers. They have to figure out how to give their workforce the best tools, how to make it secure. And it's, it's no small feat. So if, if, you know, as we, the more we can help them, the better.
2: All right. One last thing. I you know the people say, Jim, you like this company. You talked about it as a cloud prince. But what are you doing? You have, they have operating cash flow that's negative, about minus 5.3 million. Why should we not worry about that negative operating cash flow?
5: Well, I think that the the main thing we're focused on, given these big secular tailwinds we've talked about, is reaching the most amount of customers and providing the most value in the fastest time possible. And that's growth, and that takes investment. So we're investing heavily to help these customers, to innovate, make sure our products are, are, are broad and deep, and capable and make sure we can have the sales and marketing to go after these customers Um, and at the same time while the operating margin is negative it is improving year over year so we're showing not only growth very strong growth but uh, in, in, increasing uh, efficiency in the company as well, which I think is, is, is uh, assuring to investors.
2: Couldn't agree more. Todd, you run a great company. It's one of the fastest-growing companies in the universe, and it's just terrific. That's Todd McKinnon. He's the CEO of Okta. This is a cloud prince. When the market breaks down, this is what you buy. But for the long term, Mad Money's back after the break. It is time! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate. Done. It's over the 90 round question. I'm going to start with Jack in Ohio. Jack. Love your show, Jimmy. Thank you, Jack. Hey, the yield is looking more attractive. Plus, it's one of my favorite snacks, H.S.Y. Hershey. No momentum. No momentum. And they will not put themselves up for sale That said, I like what you said about the yield. If you want a conservative investment over multiple years, I think Hershey's okay. Let's go to Joe in Florida. Joe. Joe, hey Jim, this is Joe in Naples. And listen, Jim, with all the damage going on in the United States, why is Boise Cascade in the house of pain? Because of a slowdown, uh, because of problems with lumber market because people don't realize that the economy and the housing business has suddenly just gotten very weak, and I do, but my, uh, you know, but my thoughts go out to all the people. I used to go to Mexico Beach, and I used to go to the Golden Great 98, and to Cape San Blas, and I just hope everybody, Apalachicola, I just hope everybody's doing well down there. Uh, resilient area, I'll tell you that much. Let's go to Connie in New Jersey. Connie. Oh, hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Sure, Connie. What's up? Well,
0: I bought the stock DX because I heard you mention it many times on your program yes bought it around 38 now I'm talking about prior to the last couple of days okay the-
2: um black what's the stock oh Blackstone's very good I mean the fact that it's come down does not make it bad it actually makes it more attractive I think Blackstone is worth owning we're not done let's go to JP in Indiana JP. Hi, Jim. How about a big spooky? Booyah! That's very good. It's very good, and that's well-matched. I just, managed. Yeah, just wanted to know your uh, opinion on picking up shares of Dow DuPont. I you think you should do it right sell. here. I think Ed Breen's being underestimated. I know a lot of people are very worried that this industrial is actually getting hurt. I think it'll do fine. It's going to split into three companies. I would pull the trigger right here because it's that cheap. It's come down a lot. Let's go to Vicky in Florida. Vicky!
0: Jim, hi. How you doing? I am
2: doing well, Vicki. How are you?
0: I'm good. It's a little nervous the last few days, but okay. today I feel a little better. Good. No, because I I retired in 2008. So, and first wow. of all, before I start anything like that, I want to thank you for all the work you've done. My husband and I have been watching you for years. Wow. Thank you very wanna, much. We thank, never want to miss. Thank you, Vicki. <laughs> we never want we we never want to miss a show. Ah, oh, you're very. Anyway. Calm. So, you know, I retired in 2008, and I made a lot of good purchases at that time because everything was so low. Right. And, yeah, so, so it was good. And okay. I, I was watching this, and I always wanted to buy GE. All right. Well,
2: look, let's hold off doing that and just see if they cut the dividend or maybe have to do a big equity offering, and then we'll take a look at it. Not until then. Thank you for the kind comments, Vicky, And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round.
4: The Lightning Round is sponsored by T.D. Ameritrade.
1: This is the greatest show on earth. It's like Barnum and Bailey Circus.
2: The Eagles play Thursday, and that means I have Sunday to go to Costco. I want you to take a deep breath, do some yoga, And I I can do, like, a plank. Go Bears, go Ditka. Stop, Bears. I'm going to LinkedIn to find these rescue pets now. Go ahead. bumpy market this week, sometimes what I like to do is circle back to powerful long-term themes, even if those themes can be incredibly speculative. Maybe not necessarily worth owning for you. You have to decide. At the moment, one of the biggest stories around is marijuana legalization, which goes into effect in Canada in exactly five days. We spent a lot of time trying to help you navigate the looming bull market in bud, and while I think many of these pot stocks remain overheated, uh, meaning they've gone up too far too fast, I remain adamant that the best way to play this is with Constellation Brands. You know STZ is the maker of Corona and Modelo, but the company also owns a 38% stake in Canopy Growth, the Canadian cannabis producer that's the closest thing to a blue-chip name in the space. They're one of the largest players in the industry, and they stand to make a lot of money once marijuana prohibition is off the books in Canada. Now, earlier this week, I got a chance to check in with Bruce Linton. He's the co-founder chairman and CEO of Canopy Growth Corporation, which is also a big board-listed company. To get a better sense of what Canadian legalization means for the industry, and if you want more, He's speaking at my Bootcamp for Investors event tomorrow, along with Bill Newlands, the president of Constellation Brands, his partner. Take a look. Mr. Liddyman, welcome back to Mad Money.
3: Yeah, Good to be back. Thanks, Jim.
2: Okay, so Bruce, I I need you to explain to people what you said to me, uh, which is that even though there's going to be legalization next week, don't expect that there's going to be this gigantic explosion of sales in Canada because it's not going to happen.
3: Yeah, so what's going to happen is uh, October 17th is the first day Canadian adults, 19 years and older, can actually go to a store and legally buy cannabis. And I think there will be a lot of lineups and a lot of sales, but then there'll be October 18th and there'll be November 18th. And this will start to become a bit more of a a normal platform, which is a way bigger market. But really what it's about is the rest of the world's watching. And so last week I was in the EU, the UK. Um, They know about October 17th intimately, and they're trying to figure out Hmm, if we're a government, we're businesses, how do we quit ignoring cannabis and govern it, regulate it, tax it, and turn it into something that might be medicinal and for sure a much better formatted product for a party? And so, what's going to be the big bump isn't just candidates. If we do it right, Canopy leads, uh, that gives us the position globally that then all of a sudden you add a zero or two to the number of people we're trying to serve.
2: Now, I will, and I've explained to people over and over again that many of the companies I put on are really just to learn about the industry, particularly some of the Canadian ones, not to buy. But you are a New York Stock Exchange listed company, and it's kind of an interesting story because they wouldn't even let you press the bell, but whatever. Uh, but the fact <laughs> is, is that you are well capitalized, and if you have even said this is a bit like the dot com, there were some survivors. I mean, but frankly, right. you're the only one that really has a lot of capital.
3: Yeah, we got a lot of capital, so when we close, you know, uh, shareholder approval happened for the uh, US $4 billion investment uh, from Constellation. We've got a couple of uh, final check boxes, and we hope to close that before the end of October, which means about a third of our balance sheet, or a third of our total market cap will be cash. And we happen to have the biggest market share in medical around a third, and we're targeting to do that well or better on recreational adult access. And last quarter, about 10% of the sales were to Germany. And so part of the reason we're succeeding is we actually looked at the opportunity. And when I started this five, six years ago, said, why would you try to create a promotional company, which you might make a short-term enrichment in stock, when you can actually become a globally dominant company and do something interesting for a decade or two? And so I, I would say the culture and what we've created is going there. And I think Constellation, when they looked at who should we invest with, we want to make this play, we were the most costly choice by far. And I think they got great value.
2: I mean, it seems like everybody wants in, but do you think it's too late for some of these companies?
3: Well, I think the challenge is you've got to have a good dance partner, right? So Constellation, we've worked with these guys for two years. We did the first, uh, I'll call it $245 million investment about a year ago and the follow-on. Now everybody's scrambling, but, you know, you're living in the stock world. I'm living in the grow, grow business world. But because Constellation's stock didn't go doubling up, I bet a bunch of these big companies said, you know, do we jump in now? Uh, they shaved a little of their market cap, they pushed across the table $4 billion U.S. to make it this company. The question is, who else can they partner with? And I think you'll note, when we did the $5 billion investment for the two days in that week prior to making the net investment, our stock traded down quite a lot. And I think you like companies that know how to work and shut up when there shouldn't be deal talk until the deal's done. And so I think that gives a little bit of an indication of the kind of way we run our business. It's not just a pot business, this is a really good business.
2: All right, one last question. Give me the size of what you think of the market that will be disrupted worldwide by cannabis.
3: <laughs> well, this, the conservative, cautious people say 200 million, and I think the ones that are getting closer to are billion, and the closer to accurate is probably 500 billion, because we disrupt alcohol potentially, cigarettes potentially in terms of smoking cessation and our uh, whole thing. We really disrupt pharmaceutical. Because whether or not you're a geriatric care, you're dealing with arthritic conditions, uh, you're someone who can't sleep, you're going through an oncology treatment, I think you're going to find cannabinoid therapies really hit there. And so you add all that together, plus the existing $200 billion illicit market, um, that pretty quickly gets you up around $500 billion. And it sounds like, a, how could it be? But, you know, just do a bit of the back of the envelope math. It, it, it's not crazy.
2: And you did mention medical. Yesterday, you shipped medical to the U.S. So it is right. happening right here, right now, is yeah. it?
3: Yeah, Uh, Under DEA approval, um, we shipped for the first time legally, and I highlight legally, uh, cannabis from Canada to the uh, U.S. So the DEA approved partner, which we haven't announced yet, can actually begin to do medical research, clinical trials if necessary, create the data set that enables people to know when, what, where, and maybe it can become federally uh, regulated in the U.S. with some input that way. Well, I want to thank
2: you so much for speaking and coming on the show one week before this very seismic move. That's Bruce Linton, the chairman and CEO of Canopy Growth Corp, wearing a T-shirt, by the way, of one of his brand new products. Mad Money is back after the break. First, happy birthday to Kareem. And then i like to say there's always some bull market over. Probably trying to buy it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Graver. See you Monday.
0: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.